0: Morning, Grace. Well, it's a privilege to be proclaiming the word to you today. And, uh, elders, thank you for the privilege to do just that. So, if you'd turn with me in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9, I uh, had once heard John MacArthur preach on chapter 1, and he said, Happiness is having someone next to you who knows where Zechariah is. So if you need some help, uh, a good tip I use is find the first book with some red letters. That would be Matthew and just go back about five or six pages. And there you are. We are in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for the privilege of Digging into such a deep passage this morning with so much truth, we just ask that it would come out this morning and bury its way into our hearts and that you would cause it to flourish. And if there's anyone who does not know you this morning, that you would bring them to the saving knowledge of yourself. And we ask a special blessing on our pastor and his family as they're on the road on their spring break and teaching in a seminar at a sister church. We ask that you would be with them and bless them and we thank you for them. And in your name, Amen. So before we dig in to Zechariah itself, I think it's worth mentioning a couple things about the prophetic writings of the Bible. It's a strong tendency, I think, to shy away from these because they can be kind of cryptic. They can be difficult to understand at first. But as our pastor has been teaching us in, in the parables, Jesus is often saying, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And if you are, in fact, a child of his, you can understand this. So I want to give us that encouragement up front. And to use another Lagrandism, we are going to be in the deep water of the theological pool this morning. So get on your spiritual seatbelts, which you may or may not be able to see. So for the next two hours, I'm kidding. Or am I? So let's talk a little bit about the different types of scripture that are available to us. So think about a newspaper or an online newspaper these days. You have different types of writing that are available to you. You have the front page, which of course you're going to for facts. You're going to find out exactly what went on yesterday. Then you have, uh, when I was a paper boy all through high school, I did it for gas money. I used to, when I was waiting to collect from our customers for the $3 it was per week back then, I would read the editorials, because we had something called the Pulse Line, where people would call in and just vent and complain about whatever it was on their mind, and that was entertainment. But I knew that going into it. I knew not to take anything seriously that Mrs. Smith was saying about the cow that she found at midnight in her yard. So these are important things to keep in mind. We have to have a clear expectation about the type of scripture that we're reading. So perhaps one of the ones we're more comfortable with is the narratives. So if we think about the gospels or Genesis and Exodus, these are largely stories of true accounts that are very easy to understand. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's about as straightforward as it gets right there. And we're making our way through Matthew now uh, under uh, the pastor's teaching, and we're coming to a place now where we are leaving these narratives and moving into more parables. So it's more prophetic. Then we have poetry. Think of the Psalms, okay? These are largely filled with prayers and their praise. And there's a lot of colorful language in there. And they give it to us right up front in Psalm 1. So if you think about it, the righteous man is referred to as what? A tree planted by the water. Well, I'm not literally a tree planted by water. But we get very clearly what the psalmist is talking about. Then we have the wisdom literature so you think about proverbs or ecclesiastes or even some of song of solomon uh, or even into job and in these types of books we're given general principles that are good guiding points and they're not always facts but we have to know that going in some of them are outright facts like trust in the lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding and he will direct your past that is directed to us as a fact but then there's others, like train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's older, he will not depart from it. Well, we could read that, and all of us know of people who have been raised in a Christian home, been brought up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and then have turned away. So these are it's useful to know that coming in. You have to understand the type of literature that you're coming towards. So this morning, we're going to be in one of the prophetic books. And in the Hebrew, a prophet is really just someone who's a spokesman. They're just delivering a message. It's not like Nostradamus style on the History Channel if they still show that. I remember watching that years ago where he's just telling the future and it's actually a very poor interpretation of, of events. But these are prophets who took a message from God and delivered it to the people. That was simply their task. They were spokesmen. There's lots of different types of these messages that they give. Sometimes there were warnings, sometimes there were blessings. And as we'll see in Zechariah, he says that this book, the whole 14 chapters, is a book of comfort. So it is intended for us to understand this. After all, what does Moses tell us? We are to teach the scriptures (coughs) diligently to our children. And it is so in Psalm 19 where it says that it is for the simple to be made wise. That's how the scriptures describe themselves. So we actually can understand this. Now, sometimes we have prophets who give us a very straightforward message. So let's think about Elijah um, speaking to King Ahab in 1 Kings 17. He says, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain except at my word. Now, you'll never guess what happens, but there's neither dew nor rain except at his word. It's as straightforward as you can possibly get from a prophet. But then let's pivot a little bit and take a look at another instance also in the Old Testament not far away where you have some images and some colorful language and things represent other things. Let's think of the prophet Nathan as he is sent to go speak to King David. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, King David had a man murdered and stole his wife. And this man was just a simple soldier. It was the one prize, the one ewe lamb that was precious to him. And so this man is represented as a poor man, David is a rich man, and so there's representative language to describe something that is a true story or something that's actually taking place, okay? And it's critical we keep in mind that anything prophetic describes real events. This is literal. This is not allegorical. It's not like you have the privilege to make up something. When God told Abraham, get thee up out of that country, he meant, (coughs) very literally, get thee up out of that country. It's not like Abraham thought to himself, well, maybe God has this idea that a new country for me is a better way of life or change jobs. If Abraham had done that and interpreted something other than literally, we wouldn't be here today. So the scriptures are intended at all times to be interpreted literally, like what they actually say and mean. And then also understanding the type of literature that we're coming towards, whether it's Psalms or it's it's narrative. We have to keep that in mind. And just a couple of background notes on Zechariah before we dig into it. Uh, Miss Angie, if you could put up the timeline on the screen for us. I recognize this is a little difficult to see. But in general, we're talking about a period of time that was about 500 or so years before Christ. So this is right up at the end of Israel as a nation receiving prophetic words from the Lord. There was going to be a period of silence where God was no longer speaking through prophets and they had to rely on his word, much like we do today. His canon of scripture is closed. There is no more revelation until the very time of the end when once again, prophets will be sent from heaven. But certainly for now, we have the canon of scripture and that is God's entire word for us. So we're about 500 years before Christ um, and about 586 BC, the Jews had been taken from their homeland, thoroughly expelled because of their disobedience and rejection of God. This was a desperate time in their history. There, there was at one point where it's very likely Israel was the largest of the world powers during the days of Solomon and David. They had so expanded their territory that it was, it was just profound. It literally went from the Mediterranean on this side all the way to the river Euphrates over near Babylon and Iraq today. Just a massive land that they controlled and even down to the uh, Arabian Gulf but those days were long in the past, and the Jews had just spent 70 years in exile for their immense rejection of God and His Word. But He had promised that He had told them in Deuteronomy 28, "If you do not obey, you will get all these curses levied down upon you," and that's exactly what happened. So Zechariah himself, he was likely of a priestly line because his grandfather um, was was a priest. Zechariah's name means Yahweh remembers, and that's the covenant name. That's the personal name of God. And his father was Berechiah, and his name means God blesses. And Ido, his grandfather, also mentioned means at the appointed time. And This is all just in the first verse or so. So it doesn't take a, uh, a rocket scientist to put this together, all of their name meanings, that God remembers his people and blesses them in the appointed time. And that's really what all of Zechariah is about. It's about God's comfort to his people. Zechariah was a contemporary of the prophet Haggai and he had about a 50-year ministry and he's one of three prophets that we know of, also Malachi, to minister to the Jews after the exile. And it's a very tragic thing when you begin, just at the beginning of his book in verse one, he says, thus says the Lord God, whoops, that's Obadiah, you don't want that one. It's a great book, too, but not helpful for today. He says that in the second year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. He couldn't even name it by a king of Israel or Judah because they didn't have one then. What a depressing way to begin a book of God's word. He has to start it in reference to a pagan king. That's tough. This is a difficult ministry that he had. The temple was in ruins when he came back. He was born in Babylon. He was a young man when he made the trip over with his grandfather, who I believe was born in Israel and not in exile. So Idel would have known what it was like back in the glory days when they still had the original temple and everything was still beautiful. But it was all ruins now. And after they were given the license to go back to Israel, only 50,000 people went So a lot of times we think the book of Esther is fantastic but it's actually, it starts off bad. They shouldn't have been in Persia. They should have gone home. God wanted them to go home and in fact had commanded them to do that but only a small remnant actually did. So that's the world Zechariah enters into and it's also the world he dies in because he was martyred actually in the temple and our Lord Jesus refers to that in Matthew 23 When he was talking about the prophets that had been killed by the Jews, he said, From Abel unto Zechariah, whom you slain between the altar and the temple. So, this is a man who truly had it, (laughs) he had a rough life in exile and then coming to be part of the remnant, but he was privileged to hear this word of comfort from the Lord. So, now we're going to dig into that. So, if we'll start looking at chapter 9, we're going to look just right at the first verse there. And he says, The burden of the word of the Lord. So, this begins literally very heavy. Okay, it's think Marty McFly and Back to the Future. This is heavy, Doc. This is really heavy. And we're also going to do some time travel at the end of verse 9, too. So, I guess that fits for a theme. But anyway, this starts as a burden. This is a tragically heavy weight from God, this message that he's giving. But it also has profound comfort in it at the same time. And so I just picture Zechariah writing this down and just reading it to everybody he can think of, he can find, just screaming at the top of his lungs in the streets for everybody to hear this word that he was given straight from God. Verses one through eight, uh, they describe to us a prophecy that will take place in the future from the time of Zechariah, remember 500 years B.C. So I am going to read it to you, and most of it is going to make zero sense to you, but that's okay. This is not the part of Scripture that we're going to be explaining, but you do need to hear this as the backdrop for verse 9, and we'll explain it a little bit, but we won't go into tremendous detail. The burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus its resting place. For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Also against Hamath, which borders on it, and against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. For Tyre built herself a tower, heaped up silver like the dust, and gold like the mire of the streets. And behold, the Lord will cast her out... He will destroy her power in the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful, and Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abominations from between his teeth. But he who remains, even he shall be for our God and shall be like a leader in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. Verses 1 through 8, I understand there's a lot of cryptic language in there but it essentially describes what happened well not essentially it exactly describes what happened in 333 BC when Alexander the Great literally followed this exact path of conquest through the Palestinian area where Israel is and down almost into the uh, into the desert where the Jews wandered this is prophecy fulfilled each one of these cities was sacked by Alexander and we have to make special note here that this was also recorded by Josephus, the early, um, early first century Jewish historian, and he mentions Alexander going through all these cities. And he was not known to necessarily be a favored person among the Christians, but he described exactly what happened. And history shows it to us. And if you're interested in looking something up on Google Earth later, uh, the city of Tyre was a, was in, it was really a city-state on an island. And this describes how it's taken out. Well, Alexander, when he came through, was just incensed that they had built this fortress around their island. And he just, in his rage, built this kilometer-long causeway of junk and rubble and wood, everything he could amass, and built this all the way out to the island and took it over. And you can still see the remains on Google Earth today if you look at it. So you can check that out later, an hour and a half from now. So God had Tyre destroyed, and verses 1 through 8 show us that this was a great military conquest. You had a prideful king who came and did all this, and he entered Jerusalem on a horse. We find those out from history. But verse 9 moves us in the opposite direction. We're coming to a place where we see there's a very humble king who comes into Jerusalem, and we celebrate this on Palm Sunday. But it shouldn't be a surprise to us because the scriptures tell us that God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Verse nine, uh, if you happen to be taking notes, uh, you, can either provide, you can either use two very clever headings, verse nine and verse 10, or you can break it up into four parts here. So we'll get to the first part in, um, in just a second. The, this first part here is going to be about the daughter of Zion and the three commands that she receives. We see in all of this, 9 and 10, God's faithfulness. Okay, we talk a lot about that term, what is faith, what is faithfulness. It is nothing more than believing that God is going to do what he said he is going to do and that he has done it. That's it, that's what faith is. It's just simply believing God is gonna do what he said he will. In Isaiah 46, as our brother Rick had read this morning, and when thinking about the idea of prophecy, God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. In Zechariah's day, they had no idea that this stuff was coming. It was 140, 150 years later that Alexander made his march through the Middle East. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. I read somewhere, and memory fails me where I got this, but the chief means of demonstrating the truths of God's word are found in fulfilled prophecy. That's why God gives us prophecies, so we can see that it's fulfilled, and then we can trust him that he's going to continue to do that. It's the same thing with the miracles. God didn't just give people the ability to indiscriminately do miracles. It was actually very rare in the scriptures that, that you had that ability. But in every instance, he gave people that ability to testify to the fact that they were actually bringing God's word. That's the only reason. And it's the same thing with prophecy. It's not to show off the prophets, it's to show off that God is faithful. Now, A lot of times we will give a gospel call or a gospel message uh, at the end of a sermon, but this one requires it be done at the very front because if you don't accept Christ, if you don't turn from your sins, you will find yourself on the other side of this book. All of the curses that are mentioned in Deuteronomy and then here in Zechariah, they fall on us if we don't repent and turn to Christ. So Zechariah knows that and he starts things off with a word from the Lord. In chapter one, you don't have to turn there, but it says in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido, the prophet, saying, The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So that is my earnest cry and prayer for you today, that if you have not come to Christ, that today is your day of salvation, that you will come to him, and that all the blessings we're about to mention can be yours. But you absolutely must Turn to him first. That is essential, and that's why Zechariah starts off where he does. Now that the introduction is over, let's move into verse nine. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. We see three commands here given to this daughter of Zion and this is where we start to get into some of that symbolic language, that colorful scripting given to us by the prophets that we have to dig in a little bit to understand it but we can get it. So who is this daughter? Well this daughter is nothing more than Israel itself and Israel is also referred to as a daughter elsewhere in the Old Testament in Zephaniah, sing O daughter of Zion, shout O Israel. But Israel is also referred to as a bride, and that is another reason why the daughters of Jerusalem are supposed to celebrate. It's as though it was a wedding, and their bridegroom is coming. Hosea tells us, this is the Lord speaking, I will betroth you to me forever, speaking of Israel. Then in Jeremiah, return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. We cannot miss the fact, too, that the church age, where we are now, us, those who are saved and in the family, we are also the bride of Christ. Revelation 19, 7 through 9, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. So we have to recognize up front that this rejoice, O daughter of Zion, this is for every believer of every age not just the young women of Israel at the time when this would be fulfilled. This is for all of us, and we have to keep that one in mind as we keep going. So command number one, this would be the first of the fourth points here. So rejoice, rejoice greatly. Well, this is a violent emotion. This is not just you're happy. I remember in 2004, I'm from Massachusetts and when the Red Sox, finally won the World Series. That was just this epic moment that none of us knew how to handle. So... Think of that level and beyond. That's what rejoicing is because your king is coming. That's what true rejoicing is. And it's always caused in the Bible by salvation. Rejoicing is never away from salvation. Either God has actually brought his people home, like physically he has saved them from an enemy, or it's true spiritual salvation where you are genuinely saved and going to heaven someday to be with him. That is true rejoicing. So we see this in a few places. Zephaniah, again, another prophet. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. God rejoices over his own salvation of us. Then in Isaiah 25, 9. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Unless we think it's only in the Old Testament, it's carried on all through the New Testament. In Romans 5:11, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So this rejoicing, this, this is, this is a, an emotional event based on very factual information. This isn't just cheering for the sake of it. Sometimes you go to a ball game and just cheer for one of the teams because you feel like it. This has a distinct purpose, the salvation of our God. The next command given to the daughters is to shout. Well, this is really a cry of triumph. It's a true shout of joy. And this is the kind of shouting you would hear at a coronation. Um, Think of, uh, we've got King Charles III, I think, who's going to be crowned this summer. And there's uh, probably more than one, but I know one giant evangelistic effort is being planned where they have like X number of millions of tracts they want to hand out. But the shouting there, as though it was for a coronation. And this is actually used in the scriptures in, in 1 Samuel 10, 24, when Saul was crowned. So all the people shouted and said, long live the king. This is a true, just exuberant, overflowing joy and excitement at God's salvation. So it is absolutely acceptable to feel that way about your own salvation. And then what does he say next? He says, behold, your king is coming to you. Well, the fact that it says your king is very important. And and again, with the prophetic writings, we've got to pay really close attention to every single word. Because they matter. Your king, this person, could only be the Messiah. There was no king in Israel, and the only other king promised was going to be the Messiah. Israel had no king, but this person must also be of Israel. It couldn't just be a foreign king. It couldn't be Darius. It couldn't be Alexander. It couldn't be Charles. It couldn't be anybody. Deuteronomy 21.15 tells us, to, this is God speaking to his people. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren. You shall set as king over you. It couldn't be anybody but someone from the line of David and filling all the other requirements of a Jewish king. He had to be born in Israel. He had to be born of the seed of David. He had to be Jewish. And this was perfectly fulfilled in Christ. And probably the most epic passage of Christ's coming into Jerusalem as the king of the Jews, Matthew 21, 9. What do they say to him? It's a phrase we've we've heard before many times. Hosanna to whom? To the son of David. They got it. They knew the prophecy of Zechariah. They knew that this was going to be their king. They didn't say that when Alexander showed up or anybody else. They knew it when Jesus Christ came in and it says our king is coming to you your king is coming to you well we can't miss that either there's a there's a song we sing you know, for the youth you probably think we sing it every week in adventure club and that might more or less be accurate but it's called Jesus strong and kind and one of the phrases in there at the <coughs> at the very end excuse me jesus said if i am lost he will come to me and that's exactly what he does we can't go to him, it's just not even possible. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God, Romans chapter 3, 11. We see Jesus clearly comes after us, now, spiritually, and he came to them then, physically. Think of Luke nineteen ten. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So you get this picture of a king who is coming in to save. But he comes in humbly. And we want to see what kind of king this is. This would be point number two. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So what does it mean to be just? Well, just look at a couple of scriptures to figure it out. Just is another word for righteous. Psalm 711 tells us God is a just judge. So we have to catch that. There's only one just judge, and that is God Himself. So we just do the math on this. If God is the only one who is just, and this king that's coming is a just king, well, we did the math on it. That is God Himself coming in the flesh. There is no mistake, the Messiah is divine. Isaiah 6.3, we've heard this many times and sang it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That is who he is. And that is the character of this humble king coming in. Only God is just, so the Messiah must be divine. First Peter tells us, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. This wasn't lost on Peter. He understood that he was in fact just and he did so that he might bring us to God so we have this just king and he comes in having salvation he is just and having salvation well in the Hebrew salvation is a term that means just to set free to give wide open space I think of our dog she was um she's she's a stray we found actually right in front of paint rock baptist church she was just like in the middle of the road I wanted to leave her, but the kids said, no, you have to take her. So now we have a dog, and she's been with us for six months. Well, when she gets the chance to get out of her area or into the yard, she's a giant polar bear of a thing. I don't even know, East Tennessee Mutt, but she bolts. I mean, she's gone, okay? She's got wide open space. That's the picture that you get here. Salvation is setting free into wide open space. And the opposite of that would be slaves to sin because that's what we're actually slaves to. We are not free because we are slave to do the wrong thing without God. Romans 6 makes that very clear. We are slaves of sin. But the upside here is Romans 8, 1 and 2 tells us, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are free and saved. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That's what this king is doing. So you're getting this build-up picture of who he is. He is just. He is bringing salvation. What do we have next? It says he is lowly and riding on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. You get a little bit of uh, Hebrew poetry in here because... These two lines are really just restatements of each other. You see this all the time in Proverbs. They just kind of restate themselves. And there's actually four separate words here that refer to this, this donkey. He comes in, and this is just a poetic way of describing it, not on a king's steed, not on a king's horse. Yes, back in the day in Judges and at other times, and even when Solomon was crowned, he was crowned on a donkey. But That wasn't his jam, that wasn't cool enough for him so he upgraded to horses. We know that Solomon from the scriptures had more than 4,000 horse stalls in his stables and those are actually still here today and you can see them. So he made a change in animal and since then the horse has always been the symbol of a true king coming in except here because he comes in on a donkey with great humility. And by the way, these, these words that describe this donkey, these four words, it's a very unruly young animal. So this would have been havoc for anybody trying to ride this thing, an embarrassment most likely, not something that you were proud of. So he comes in with great humility, lowly is the word given to us. And that just means afflicted, wretched or poor, truly meek and truly mild. And it's exactly what our brother read to us this morning, uh, Rob, from Matthew. Christ is meek and lowly of heart. That's how he describes himself. And just think of that in opposite, in contrast to verses 1 through 8. When Alexander came in, he came in like this tirade. This guy had just finished conquering the Medo-Persian Empire. And then he came down to the Middle East, planned on taking over everything. But amazingly, he didn't go after Jerusalem, but that shouldn't surprise us because God said he wouldn't and he would spare it. So this lowly king who's coming in perfectly describes our Lord Jesus in his immense humility. Matthew eleven twenty nine, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you could turn with me over to John chapter 13, we're gonna take a look at the humility of Christ and how he came in and just a perfect picture of what true humility really is. John chapter 13, verses two. We'll begin in verse two. This is at the Last Supper, the night before the crucifixion. And supper being ended, The devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going to God. So picture this, that is a truly majestic king. All things had been given to Jesus and he was going to God. He rose up from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. (laughs) That's humility, folks. The God of the universe washing the dirty feet of men who wore sandals in an agrarian culture, that was dirty. But this is the God of the universe willing to humiliate himself because of his love for us. What a beautiful picture. Now moving into verse 10, this this gets to our time machine jump forward. We just spent in verse nine time talking about the first coming of Christ, his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday into Jerusalem. Verse 10 talks about his second coming. So you might ask the question, okay, I get it. So Jesus came once, he's gonna come a second time. Where does the church fit in here? Well here, I can help you with that. If you find the period at the end of verse nine, Then you find the number 10 at the beginning of verse 10. That's where we are, in between those two. The little blank space, might be a millimeter, that's the church age. But these prophets, you know, Peter tells us, they didn't have a grasp of time. They just took the message from God and gave it. And Jesus himself would separate out verses like this. At one point, he he sat down in a synagogue and taught from Isaiah and said, I'm declaring to you the acceptable year of the Lord. But he stopped right there. The rest of that verse talks about the end times, but he punctuated it. He stopped it right there. He wanted to draw a distinction between his first coming and his second. And that's exactly what you have here. So beginning in verse 10, we're gonna see two points here. Point number three would be what the Father does. And point number four is what Christ does. So as we begin verse 10, we shift speakers. So we now have God the Father speaking directly about what he is going to do. And we have some more of that colorful prophetic language that we'll step through. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. So the phrase cut off, uh, this is a complete eradication. It's destruction, it's removal. It's it's the end of something. So you think in, in the nation of Israel, when you sinned really bad, you are cut off from your people. You were put out of the camp, like this is it. This is game over for whatever he's talking about here. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. Well, chariots and horses have always been symbols of war and power throughout the scriptures. Uh, Just one example, you've got Psalm 20 verse seven. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in Yahweh, our God. If you can turn back with me just a few pages from Zechariah, we're going to take a look at Micah chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. We're in Micah 4, verses 2 and 3. Maybe back about, I don't know, 8 or 10 pages from Zechariah, maybe a little more. Micah 4, verses 2 and 3. This is speaking of the end times, when the Lord comes the second time. This is important for us to see. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem... He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is the end of all violence, the end of all war. This is the true peace that only Jesus Christ can bring. I know we got a bunch of veterans in the room today and you think about how many times and how many hours you guys spent perfecting your craft, learning how to wield the weapons of war. Those are dangerous things and you've got to know what to do with them. But Jesus does away with all of that entirely. The Father ends all war and puts an end to any strife from nations. And in fact, you get the Gentiles of the world, the non-Jews, us, desperately wanting to come to Jerusalem and worship and just hear God's word. And this is what it's like when he comes his second time before his, or at the time, when his millennial kingdom begins. So we've seen what the father does. He'll cut off the chariot and the horse from Jerusalem. And he mentions Ephraim in Jerusalem. Well, Ephraim is just one of the tribes of Israel that's always used, well, not always, but most of the time used to represent the northern section of Israel, the northern kingdom. And Jerusalem represents Judah. It's, it's the southern point of Israel. They often say from Ephraim to, to Jerusalem or Ephraim to Judah or Dan to Beersheba. It's the whole section of Israel. It's their entire country. So this is very clearly stating for us, Israel still has a place in the end. God is going to give them their whole country back. They've got it from Ephraim down to Jerusalem. Peace will reign over the entire earth. That is what the Father does. The last section here talks about what the son does. This is Christ now. This is the father speaking about Christ. This king who is come in verse nine and who is coming a second time in verse 10. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The Messiah's words have the ability to bring peace. Okay. We see he speaks peace. He doesn't force peace. He doesn't make people bow down. He just says there will be peace. And that is exactly what happens. And we saw this in the Gospels. In Mark 4.39, there was a scene in the scriptures where there's a tremendous storm. The wind and the waves are all over the place threatening to capsize and kill everyone. And Jesus then, then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Only the words of Christ can bring true peace. We actually see this in, verse, in chapter 8, verse 23, right before our passage. Thus says in Zechariah eight twenty-three, Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. There is absolute peace, and the nations will want to be part of God's kingdom. And his dominion clearly has no end. This phrase, sea to sea, he says, his dominion shall be from sea to sea. Well, that's everything, I and mean, that's all the land. That, that's every place you could put your foot and even swim. This is the entire expanse of the earth, end to end, sea to sea. In this river, what's he talking about there? And from the river to the ends of the earth. You get a little bit more Hebrew poetry here, but they restate the same thing with a few other words. This river is always referring to whenever you just see the river, It in our context, it would generally mean the Mississippi. Well, I'm sorry, actually, it would mean the Tennessee if we're here. So this river is the Euphrates, the great river Euphrates that features everywhere from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis and the Garden of Eden all the way until Revelation. And this river was an important demarcation point because that was the easternmost section or the border of the nation of Israel. So he's brought peace. He's gotten rid of all the weapons of war. He's gotten rid of all violence, all harm. All the nations are coming to Christ and they want to worship in Jerusalem. All the saints gathered together and we're worshiping as one. And what do we see there? We see just complete peace this river it says and even beyond and from the river to the ends of the earth so everything you've got in Israel everything I promised you before and more the rest of it and that's what we can rejoice in as believers because this is our God too this is not just the God of the Jews we can celebrate this we can rejoice and shout and behold that this is who our God truly is so I just want to remind us um as we close here, Revelation 19 tells us that God is coming again. Christ is coming again. But he won't be on a donkey this time. He's going to be coming on a white horse. And it's going to be a conquering horse at first and then bringing tremendous peace. And the scriptures call him faithful and true. As again, Brother Rick had read for us out of Isaiah 46, we can have complete confidence that everything we just read is in fact If it hasn't been done already, it is going to be brought to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great gift of your word, these great promises, these colorful and beautiful words for our comfort through your prophet Zechariah. We thank you for having messengers and preachers who give us the word. We thank you for our own teachers and the preachers in this church. We thank you for our pastor and we thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. May we keep that in mind all week. And we thank you, Jesus. Amen.